Will you pray with me? Father, you are holy, and you call us your holy people. We are the people of God called by your name, called from the darkness, delivered from shame. One holy race, saints every one, bought by the blood of Christ, Jesus the Son. And in his name, we worship and sing and pray. Amen. Do you have a nickname? Who gave it to you? Do you like it? Do you wish it would go away? Or are you living into it? My dad loves to nickname people. It's one of his uh, gifts. And as I studied our family, I realized his dad did it to him. It's just a generational blessing or it's just there. <laughs> the thing about nicknames is sometimes they remind us of the worst things we did. I never met him, but I always felt bad for Roy Wrongway Regals, who picked up the ball in the Rose Bowl and ran the wrong direction. And ever after that, he was known as Wrongway. I prefer Davian Mitchell's nickname. When he was in college and his team won the national championship, his nickname was Off Night. Not because he had an off night shooting, but because if he was defending you, you were going to have an off night. That's a good nickname. In the scriptures, I gather that Luke used a couple of nicknames. One of them, I think, was a nickname. When he addresses both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, he says, Theophilus, except we don't have any other record of anybody named Theophilus. Maybe somebody just named their child lover of God. But scholars, at least some scholars, think Luke's winking at us when he says that. He's saying, all of you who love God, have I got a story to tell you. There's another famous nickname in Luke's second volume in the book of Acts. And as I studied it in these days, I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if we could hear it first person, if somehow the recipient of that nickname could come to us and could tell us his story. What a story he might tell. Would you listen with me? Hi, Dr. Luke. I'm glad to see you. I heard you're writing a book. Oh, you're writing two books. That's great, because the story needs to be told. You know every time the story is told, things change. People change when the story is told. Who are you writing your book to? Theophilus. I don't think I've met. Oh, I get it. To everyone who loves God. Oh, yeah, yes, I, I have a nickname too, but you know that. How did I get my nickname? Well, that's an interesting story. I 
was just a regular Joseph. I was born in Cyprus. I grew up with the Greek-speaking Jews there, but I eventually made my way to Jerusalem. I'm from the tribe of Levi, the tribe of the priests through Aaron's line. But when I got to Jerusalem, I got there just in time for the greatest moment in history. When Jesus made his way on the scene, I heard him speak. I was in the crowd that day when he fed people with a few fish and loaves. I saw him open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf and make lame people walk. I, I saw him make dead people live, and I believed in him. I was one of those that he sent out with just uh, a few things in our possession to go and tell the good news. And we saw the wonders of God as we went out in his name. So, well, yeah, like everybody else, I was heartbroken when they crucified him. I was scattered like the rest. I ran for my life. It wasn't popular to be a follower of Jesus in that moment. And then... And then we started hearing a whisper that became a rumble, that Jesus was alive again. Those guys who went to Emmaus came back telling their story about how their hearts burned within them, and then he appeared to the 12. And, and it was hard for me to believe, not that I'm a, a doubting Thomas, but I just wasn't sure it was even possible for for Jesus, who was dead, to come back to life again. But I saw him. Once he appeared to over 500 of us, men and women, at the same time, I knew it was true. And for those 40 days, he talked to us, and he taught us, and he promised us his presence, that even if we couldn't see him, he would still be with us another paraclete, another encourager, another comforter would come, and he would give us the words and give us the strength to do what we needed to do, and then just like that, Jesus was gone. We watched him go into the sky, and then we waited. Are you good at waiting, Luke? I'm not a good waiter. The days seemed long. For 10 days, we met together in that upper room. There were just about 120 of us. There was room in the room for us, and then the room was full. The wind started blowing inside the house, and fire fell, and people started speaking in languages that they had never learned, and people outside could hear it in languages that were their languages. And then Peter started preaching, and people started believing, and then suddenly we were no longer 120. We were 3,120. Imagine the logistical challenges of that. The master always fed people, so we thought we should feed people. And some of the people were poor, and they didn't have enough money to eat, and so we fed them. We had money until we didn't. And I began to doubt, and I said, God, why don't you do something? You've given these people the bread of life. How are they going to get bread? And I felt like the Spirit said to me, 
why don't you do something? And I remembered I had some land, and I sold it. And I gave the money to the apostles. I put it at their feet because I trusted them that they would know what to do with that, and they fed the people. And for a while, things were good. Other people followed my example. But then, but then there was Ananias and Sapphira, and then people were hungry again. It's hard to bring all these different people from all these different cultures together. Nobody else in history had ever done that except by war or something. No, it was hard because we were bringing all these different cultures together and some of the people felt like they were being mistreated. They were empty, hungry, and the apostles said, we can't fix this problem. We just got to pray and we got to preach. So you, for the sake of these people who feel empty, would you would you find some people who are full, full of the Spirit and full of faith? And we chose seven, and those seven solved the problem. And then it, all heaven broke loose in Jerusalem again, and the priests started getting saved, and God was doing amazing things, and it seemed like it would never End. And, and Stephen, one of those seven who was so full of wisdom and grace and power, he was just God intoxicated. He was so full of God. He went to my synagogue, the synagogue of the freedmen, and he debated with the religious leaders. He tried to explain the grace of God to them, but they were mad about it. They were so angry that they took him outside the city. I'll, I'll never forget the look in his eyes that day. I looked closely. You know, when you look in somebody's eyes, you can see what they're seeing. And I swear, I saw Jesus in his eyes as he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And they stoned him to death. And Saul was there that day. I mean, he didn't throw a rock, but he was there holding the coats for all the people who were throwing the rocks. He gave his full approval, and then he went on a rampage with eyes blinded by rage. He, he started arresting Christians. He knew we met from house to house, and he used that against us, and he went from house to house and arrested us and threw us in prison, and, and the, the church was scattered, and some holy men buried Stephen, and we ran for our lives, everybody except the apostles, and a few of us stayed, but the rest of the Christians got out of town as fast as they could, and Saul just kept killing people, arresting people. I bet he would still be arresting people if God had not arrested him on the road to Damascus. He might still be blind with rage if Jesus had not blinded him and Brother Ananias had not touched him and restored his sight. And then with all the zeal that he used to persecute the church, he began to preach the gospel. It was unbelievable, the transformation of that man. I know people can be skeptical, Luke that anybody ever really changes. But I'm telling you, the difference between Saul before Jesus and after Jesus was like night 
and day. And so he preached there in Damascus until his old friends became so angry they tried to do to him what he used to do to us. He couldn't even walk out the front gate of Damascus. They had to open a, a, a place in the wall and lower him in a basket. And he must have felt so alone in that basket. He headed to Jerusalem. At least in Jerusalem, there were other followers of the way. Jesus' people would be there. Finally, he would have a family of other believers, but they were skeptical. The hardest thing, maybe even harder than experiencing change, is getting people to believe that you've actually changed. Saul was not exactly welcome. He was kind of like inviting a lion to your petting zoo. The lambs are a little nervous when the lion gets in with the lambs. But I couldn't believe they didn't believe his story. Finally, I found him, and I put my arm around him. He was looking down, and I lifted his head, and I said, listen, Saul, I'm going to be your advocate. You need an advocate? I'm going to be your advocate. Jesus is my advocate, and I'm going to be yours. Let's go and tell you. And I took him to the apostles, and I said, look, you have seen the Lord. Saul has seen the Lord. You heard the Lord speak. Saul heard the Lord speak just the other day. You preach Jesus Saul preached Jesus so fearlessly that they ran him out of Damascus. And if God can save him, maybe we should trust him. And that changed everything. Then Saul started to preach in Jerusalem. But wherever Saul preached, he preached with such conviction and fire that, that it brought some intense reactions from others. And finally, we thought the best thing for Saul was to head back to Tarsus. And so we put him on a boat in Caesarea. It was nine years later, the next time I... I don't guess I ever would have seen Saul again, except the apostles sent me to Antioch. Oh, yeah, those people who ran for their lives when Saul was trying to kill them, some of them ended up in Cyprus, my home island. Some went to Phoenicia, and some went to Antioch. And there in Antioch, something weird happened. They started, they started preaching to the Gentiles. And even the ones who didn't have the law and the prophets and the heritage and the feasts, even they, when they overheard the good news, said, hey, tell me more about that. And some of them believed. And the apostles were like, how is this even possible? Of course, Luke, you know. Nothing is impossible with God. They said, Barnabas, come here. We're sending you to Antioch. We want you to go there, and we want you to talk to those people and find out what's going on there. And so I made my way to Antioch. And you know what I saw when I got there? When I got to Antioch, there was grace everywhere I looked. God's unmerited favor. You know, when you see a person or a place or a people so changed, you say, only God could do that. Well, that's what I saw. 
And I thought, I, I, gotta, I gotta help these people. And so I told them that they could have become discouraged there in that city. And so I said to them, look, just stay with the stuff. Remain in Jesus. Remain true to him with all your hearts. And I began to teach them. And the more I taught, the more of them became believers in Jesus. We were, we were like midwives. I mean, people were just being born into the kingdom. It was like Jerusalem in the early days. And I was so excited to see what God was doing. And I was so tired from preaching every day. And I thought, I can't do this alone. And then I thought, wait a minute. I know someone. I know someone who would be good at this. I know someone who would be better at this than I am. He could teach these new believers the truth. He's, he's, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin, but he's also a Roman citizen. He could help these new believers. And so I said to the church in Antioch, wait right here. I'll be right back. And they said, where are you going? And I said, I'm on a mission. I'm headed to Tarsus. And you just wait right here. And so I headed out to Tarsus and I went on my way and I started looking for Saul. Of course, he was never hard to find. And I found him there and I said, you gotta have, I got a job for you, Saul. Come with me. Let's go. We're going back. God's got a great God made you for this, Saul. You can make a difference in the lives of these new believers. And for a whole year, we taught and we preached and we prayed. And God did amazing things. And those new baby believers started to grow up. And we thought we might stay there forever. But then Agabus told us that there was going to be a famine and we took up an offering. Can you believe Gentiles took up an offering for the Jews? Nobody would do that normally. They had no other connection except Jesus. But it turns out their connection in Jesus was bigger than all the things that separated them. So we took the offering up and we came back. And I suppose we could have just stayed right there. That church was so healthy. But I don't know if you know this, but... But grace, if you don't share it, is kind of like manna in the Old Testament if you don't use it. It'll go sour. Koinonia can become koinonitis. And pretty soon, it's just you, me, Jude, and Nicanor, we four, no more, shut the door. And we get in our little cliques with the people that we've always known, and it's hard for anybody like Saul coming to Jerusalem to break into that, and we were praying. You talk about an amazing group of leaders. You never would have put these people together. There was Lucian of Cyrene and Simeon of Niger. They were both from Africa, and Menaean, who grew up on the wrong political side of the tracks, growing up with Herod and supporting what Herod did. But they were there, and Saul and I were there, and, and we were praying, and we were worshiping, and when you were fasting. And you know, the great thing about prayer is sometimes it's not just you're talking to God, but sometimes it's listening to what he has to say to you. 
And Saul and I started feeling a stirring. The wind started blowing inside the house again. There was no fire. Nobody spoke in different languages this time. But it was just so clear that God had something for us to do. And, and Saul and I started talking about it. And we thought, how could we leave this church? I mean, look what God has done here. There's no way we can leave this church now. But the other three were also praying. And God was speaking to them too. And they said, you have to go. And they commended us to God's grace. And they put their hands on our heads and they prayed for us and they sent us out and we started preaching. What an adventure. You have no idea how dangerous preaching can be. Because when we were in Lystra, Paul was preaching and some of the Jews from Antioch and some of the other ancient places and cities gathered there and they were against us. Because, you know, the thing about grace is for some of us, it just makes us so glad. But for other people, it just makes them so mad. And they said, we got to get rid of the. This is so strange, isn't it? One minute, Saul is holding the coach for them to kill Stephen. And the, and the next minute, he's on the ground. And they're throwing rocks at him. And that day, we thought he was dead. But he opened his eyes, and he lifted his head, and he stood up and dusted himself off and started preaching again, and we had a harvest in that city because the thing about the good news of the gospel is it's unstoppable, and the more we preached, the more people were saved, and we went back to Antioch again, the same place they had commissioned us with the grace of God and the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, kept on encouraging us. Oh yeah, my, my nickname is, is Bar Son Nab. That's the Hebrew, Nabas Encourager, Encouragement, Son of Encouragement. If, if I had been a woman, it would have been Bat Nabas, daughter of encouragement. But the thing about sons and daughters is so often they have fathers and our encouragement came from the great encouragement. In, in Greek, how would you say it, Luke? It would be huios parakletos, son of encouragement. Same word Jesus used to describe the Holy Spirit to his disciples the night before he was crucified. I'll send you another paraclete, someone to come alongside. And to this day, if our eyes are open, people need to be encouraged because the world can be such a discouraging place. From my point of view, discouragement is not a spiritual gift. To be Job's friends everywhere you go is a terrible thing. But to be an encourager, you have to receive encouragement from the Holy Spirit. And the good news is, if you don't have a nickname yet, you're welcome to use mine. Because the world needs more Barnabases and Botnabases. The world needs people who are encouraging. In fact, in fact, every Theophilus, if you love God, can become a Barnabas because... If you really love God with all your heart, soul, and strength, you won't be able to help yourself. 
you're going to love other people because the God who created us also created them in his image. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I can become encouraged and encouragers because that's what the grace of God does. Don't let God's grace to others make you mad. Let it make you glad. Be ye glad. Oh, be ye glad. Every debt that you ever had has been paid up in full by the grace of the Lord. Be ye glad, be ye glad, be ye glad. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the grace that drew salvation's plan for the love that brought it down to us, for the mighty gulf that you did span at Calvary. God, by your grace, make us into a church that encourages. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.